I remember each year when testing season arrived, I could recall the stress, the nerves, the long days, and the overwhelm. I know my students could sense and feel everything I was feeling, and I'm sure it impacted them. And not for the better. I knew that each year the same season would arise, but I no longer had to feel the way that I did prior. With simply teaching and reinforcing strategies, I saw my students catching on and tackling the hard work became easier. This episode is going to offer some of my best practices when it comes to reading and preparing students for the test. If you are ready to dive in, I will meet you inside. Welcome to The Literacy Dive, a podcast for teachers who want to take a deeper dive into all things reading and writing. I'm your host, Megan Polk. My number one passion is, you guessed it, all things literacy and supporting teachers like you. Join me each week to learn teacher tips and actionable step-by-step strategies to help you grow as an educator. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Literacy Dive podcast. I am so excited that you are listening in today because I'm loving this topic of test-taking strategies. Strategies truly are the key to student success. If they have tools and strategies that they can pull from when faced with a comprehension question, they are going to feel more at ease, more confident, and more ready to pull from their knowledge and past teachings to finding the best answer. Many students are handed a reading passage and told to answer a set of 7 to 10 questions, and when that happens, that is super overwhelming. It is super stressful. Taking into account and consideration that some students may not be reading on grade level, or some may truly struggle with comprehension or have anxiety when it comes to test-taking, when being faced with a two-page reading passage and an additional page or two of questions, that anxiety really starts setting in. Now, systems, processes, and strategies, these are going to protect those students who do have a hard time grasping skills. But those same systems, processes, and strategies will also support those students who don't have many challenges because they can use these as a form of double-checking their work, which is definitely a life skill. Some kids who are confident, they work so quickly Because they have confidence and they are getting good grades and good scores, they oftentimes are the ones who do not go back a second time and check through. So this is a way that you can really support those kids too. Now, I am going to dive into seven strategies that have tremendously helped my students in the past when it came time for preparing for the test. So strategy one is dissecting the title. Now, when dissecting the title, it is important that students know what that even means. Like dissecting a frog, the purpose is to cut it up to study its internal parts. And I also like to tell them that dissecting, it means to analyze something in great detail. And that is what we are going to do with the very beginning of the passage, the title. We start at the top. Now, to do this, we will read the title twice. And after reading the title, we will think about what it reminds us of, analyze what words stand out, and pay attention to any figurative language that might be included. We will then make a web straight from the different words in that title, and we're going to write down synonyms. We are going to write down connections. 
we're going to write down what the word in the title actually means or why we think that word might be there. So overall here, the goal is to think about keywords, background knowledge, and what you think the passage will be about based on the title. This provides students with strengthening their brain muscles ahead of reading the paragraphs and learning what that paragraph is actually about. So when I'm mentioning that we're going to web, that just means that when you see the big, bold title, you are going to start drawing the tick marks like you would do for a web, and kids are going to start just brainstorming off in the white space anything that comes to mind and certain words, they can just web off of that certain word. So that is what I mean by webbing the title. I tend to learn by example, so I want to give you an example of what this could look like, and I'm going to do my best to map this out and to help you visualize it. So let's say, for example, that the title of a passage is The Early Life of a Famous Hygienist. Well, my thinking tells me that maybe this is a biography because of the word life, and early means that maybe we're going to be focusing on when the person was young before becoming famous. And then that word famous, well, that means well-known, celebrated, famed, popular, renowned, notable, distinguished, respected. These would all be written off of the word famous because that's what came to my mind. And then the suffix I-S-T, well, I know that that means one who works with. So this must be a person who works with something. Hygienist. Hmm. Well, this kind of sounds like hygiene if I remove the suffix. And hygiene makes me think of being clean, being healthy, maybe someone who values or takes care of someone or something. So that's the kind of thinking that we want our students to do when they see that title. Then... Students will read the passage to learn more about the topic. Now, the important thing with dissecting the title is we want to make sure that we are doing something with this when we're done reading. So after reading the passage, it is a good practice to revisit the title, ask students why they feel the author titled the passage the way that he or she did, and have the students explain. Also, have them look at their title webs and the words and phrases that they jotted down. Were those helpful or did they connect to the actual passage after they got done reading? Kids love doing this level of analysis. It's a higher order thinking skill too. And I just want you to realize that dissecting the title is a very powerful practice. Strategy number two that I love doing is adding P-I-E or P-I-E-E-D for author's purpose, whichever you teach. Pi is the standard for author's purpose, but I know that there are some other additional types of reasons that authors write. And so whatever you teach your students, whatever acronym, whatever letters to identify each type of writing, go ahead and put that in the top. So at the top of the paper, you will have your students write P-I-E. And the reason for this is that at least narrowing it down to P-I-E gets the kids thinking about the main purpose and eliminating the other main purposes for writing. So after students read the passage, you are going to want to instruct them back to the beginning of the passage. Now, a great time to incorporate P-I or P-I-E is after they are done revisiting the title. 
they can immediately think about the purpose of this piece of text. Now, in the case of if you've never heard this before, the P is for persuade, the I is for inform, and the E is for entertain. So you're wanting your students to know, did the author want to persuade them to think a certain way after reading the passage? Did the author want to inform them about a topic or idea? Did the author write for enjoyment and want to entertain them? When the students are firm on why the author wrote the text, you will then want them to circle P, I, or E. Now, this is super helpful because oftentimes passages do have an author's purpose question, and if students can eliminate the buzzwords connected to the purposes they crossed out, it makes it easier to get to the right answer, and that is what we want, our students to use what they know and to not let the basic questions trick them. Strategy three, numbering paragraphs and writing the main idea. Now, I'm kind of grouping these together because it just makes sense that way in my brain. So before having students start reading, I will have them number the paragraphs. Now, passages sometimes have some type of line counting system, like by fives, But I want students to actually number the actual paragraphs. This is going to help to chunk the bigger text, and now students can focus on smaller pieces of the whole. After kids read the paragraph, you are going to want them to write the main idea. Now, this is just a few words or a short statement explaining what they just read about. Numbering the paragraphs actually has a few benefits. When answering questions, kids can show their proof of where they found the answer if it is within the text, and they can write down the paragraph number that supports their claim. If questions mention in paragraph 4 or in paragraph 6, they can easily jump to that part of the passage. They will not have to waste time counting and recounting and potentially miscounting along the way. This also helps with summary questions. Those are so hard, but if kids have numbered the paragraphs and wrote a general main idea of what's happening, they should be able to read the short main ideas and have a general recount of the entire passage. So this is going to help with identifying beginning, middle, and end. This also assists with conquering any sequencing and ordering of event questions. Because the paragraphs and events are numbered, when kids are finding when different events happened, they can use the numbers attached to when it falls within the text to see what happened first, second, third, fourth, or what happened never, not at all, because we know that questions try to trick the kids. So this is a great strategy for kids and has many other benefits too, but numbering the paragraphs and writing a quick main idea will overall help your kiddos when it comes to them independently taking that test. Strategy four, show proof for answers within the text. This is going to break kids of the habit of just bubbling in an answer and that's it. You want to encourage students to show proof and explain how they got to that conclusion. Now, while there might be a handful of inferential questions that they just kind of have to use their thinking for, there are going to be a great number of questions that will be found within the text. So for those questions, have students show proof. Doing this practice verifies that the best answer choice is being selected based on the text that they read. 
Now, methods of showing proof consist of highlighting, you can have kids underline, you can have kids circle, and then taking it a step further to confirm the paragraph number where the information is found. Now, this is super helpful for teachers because you can quickly flip to the passage and see where they found the answer, especially if that answer is wrong. You can work on clarifying the misconceptions that they might have found. You can address that and have that as a spot where you can do some reteach. This is also good as a double-check method for all kids. We want kids to double-check and to confirm that, yes, indeed, that is the right answer or the best answer. So make sure students show proof by the method they are comfortable with or the method that makes the best sense and by including the paragraph where they found it, especially if the proof is within the text. Okay, strategy five is the main idea of photos. Now, photographs are powerful. Anytime there's a photograph, image, graph, or some type of visual, it is there for a reason. And it should be a warning sign for students that this is important. I need to stop and think about what is this here for? And what is it here to teach me? There is a simple question I like to ask students when getting to one of those visuals. Why did the author include this photograph, diagram, graph, timeline, image, just fill in the blank? Why did the author include this? Students will answer the question off to the side of the photo, right there at the time that that picture pops up. This is also going to help with author's purpose and why key features were included within the text for the reader. This practice also helps students to remember to reference the photos included and to study that image, that graph, that timeline, that person's picture, etc., and not to skip over it without doing some think work first. So anytime there is an image, a graph, a person's picture, a timeline, whatever it is, we have to stop right in the moment and do some think work right out in the white space why we think that's there, what it's there for, what it's there to teach us, and then we can resume our reading. Strategy six, elimination strategies, and this is one of my favorites. It is a favorite strategy because this is going to help kids to feel empowered and in control. Now, I like to forewarn kids that the test writer is out to trick them, but we don't have to be fooled. One way we can be one step ahead is to properly get rid of any bogus answer choices immediately. Now, wait, wait, wait. We don't just cross out anything just because, though. Get students in the habit of always explaining why before crossing out that answer choice. This is a great thinking strategy and elimination skill. Maybe it's a word, a fact, a number, a statistic that makes it incorrect. We will highlight or circle the part of that answer choice that is inaccurate, and then we cross it out. I'm telling you, we get excited. We get empowered. We are in control. We figure out what's wrong with it, and then we identify it, notate it, and we slash that answer choice out. Literally, my students, if you heard them, they would say, get it out of here. That's what we say. When we figure out you are not it, we will get it out of here. But we only do that after proving why first. I always make it a big deal that if we can eliminate one or two of those bogus answer choices, 
it becomes so much easier to arrive at the best answer choice, and choosing between two is way easier than choosing between four. The last strategy I'm going to talk about today is tricky words. Those darn tricky words. Now, similar to the last strategy, I tell kids that sometimes the test creators want to add a really big word or a word that we can't even pronounce in the passage, and they're doing that to trick us. But because we know our strategies, we're not going to allow that. Now, one of our strategies is to reinforce our context clues strategies. If you are not new around here, you might have already heard episodes 53 and 54, which are diving into context clues strategies. And in that episode, I actually break down the different types of strategies that I have taught students. So if you are looking for strategies around solving unknown words, make sure to listen to that episode for tips. I'm going to link to that specific episode in the show notes for you. And there is also a context clues freebie that you can grab in that episode as well. So going over the different ways that we know how to solve unknown words is going to be a big help for your students. Within the text, when kids come to a word that they don't know, the strategy is to pause and jot down what they think it means or any part of the word that can help them to understand it better. Kids are going to then write it down on their actual testing passage or their reading passage for practice. They're going to write it down right there in text to help them move on with the next part of the text. Now, the bold words that are found in the passages are a warning signal that it's probably going to be in a question in some form or fashion. So when we get to that word, we're going to pause and similar to the title web, We're going to do that same strategy except just for that individual word. We're going to go ahead and write out what that word could mean. We're going to look at the word parts. We're going to look at surrounding words, etc. And we're going to predict what it means, and we're going to write it down right in the moment. We can actually teach students that they can plug in the word or the synonym into that actual sentence and see how it sounds. Does it make sense? So you are now encouraging kids to jot down synonyms or what that word makes them think about while drawing from their background knowledge and the context clues, and that's going to help students feel confident with unknown words. I hope these seven strategies are leaving you excited about testing and knowing that this prep can be informative and beneficial for your students. It does not have to be boring, stiff, and stressful. Your kids will begin smiling and feeling super comfortable with reading passages and answering questions when they know that they have a toolbox of strategies and tools to help them. Please, please, please do not feel overwhelmed by everything that I shared and do not feel like you have to do all of this or think that you are not doing amazing teaching if you have not taught these strategies. These ideas are just here for you. They're here if your students are struggling and you have no idea what to do. So maybe start with one or two ideas and see how your students do with them. So what will it be? Dissecting the title, adding P-I-E at the top of your paper, numbering paragraphs, writing down the main idea, showing proof for answer choices, writing the main idea of photos and visuals, trying some elimination strategies, or ensuring that your kiddos are prepared to tackle those tricky words. I would love to know what you are eager to try, so please let me know. 
send me a DM on Instagram at The Literacy Dive because I want to cheer you on. Do you know of a teacher who could benefit from this particular episode? If so, please share with them, spread the word about this episode and this podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, you are going to love the episode coming next week. In the next episode, I'm going to dive into ways that your students can truly show what they know without the stress or pressure of the dreaded test prep. So come back and join me next Monday and learn ways to engage your students through the actual practice with that passage. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Come hang out with me over on Instagram at The Literacy Dive. I would love to hear from you in my DMs. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to hit that follow button and share this with a friend. I'll catch you in the next episode.